Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. We're also on BitTube. This one can be on my personal YouTube channel because my own YouTube channel got removed because they don't like what I'm telling them. And I've got four other podcasts, the Meditation Podcast, the Crypto Podcast, Learn Polish and Speaking Podcast, as well as being a podcasting coach. And this episode, as well as a lot of others, if you're on Spotify, you can actually see the video. You'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest, also a podcaster, author, HR leader and speaker, please welcome Kim Harmon. Did I say it correctly? Your surname? Hamer. Hamer. Close. Close. Hamer. Yes, yes, close. Roy, nice to meet you. So Hi, happy Roy. to be here. Yes. So I know you've written the 100 Acts of Love, but you might just kind of let the listeners know who's Kim. Sure. Um, so <laughs> I could take up the whole podcast about who I am, <laughs> but, but we'll kind of cut to the chase. Um, I am a former cancer caregiver and a widow. Uh, my husband died from cancer at the age of 44. At the time, we had three children who were 12, 9, and 7. And the reason that I'm here or sort of, you know, everyone's looking for their purpose. And um, I didn't stumble on mine until I was much older. But uh, during this time, um, I love, I kind of want to tell one story. So my husband was working um, at an organization and we, when he was first diagnosed, we were on something called an HMO. So in America, you, your, your health insurance is tied to your job. And you can have all these different kinds of health insurance. You can have something called an HMO, which means you can only see a certain set of doctors. And then you have something called a PPO, which is means you can see a larger set of doctors at your choice. And so we were on this HMO, which limited the doctors that we can see. And we found a doctor that we wanted my husband to be treated by. Um, but he was on a PPO. And um, the other thing about health insurance in America is you you can enroll once a year in your company. So if you move to a different company, you enroll. But if you're in the same company for many years, you can only enroll and change what you're on once a year. And so we had we had chosen and we meant to pick a PPO, but we had chosen an HMO. And the gentleman that my husband worked with, there was a gentleman my husband worked with who they didn't really they didn't get along well. They just didn't really particularly like each other, but they respected each other. And this gentleman fought the insurance company all the way to the top. And that meant sending a lot of emails, making a lot of phone calls, telling them that it was a mistake, you know, just constantly badgering this organization. This does not normally happen. And he ended up getting us switched and we were able to see this doctor. And the reason that is so important is because I firmly believe that the treatment that this doctor gave my husband gave my husband three extra years on this earth, which gave my children three extra years to know their father. Because otherwise, my, my husband probably would have died when our kids were ages four, seven, and nine. And the nine-year-old would have had you know memories of him, but the four and seven-year-old probably very little. Um, and so I share the story because it just goes to show what one person and how how one person can really have an amazing positive effect on someone who's dealing with cancer or loss or, you know, anything. Um, so during that process, when my husband was sick and he got better, 
And then he got sick again and he died four months later. And so during that process, while he had cancer and after he died, I noticed that a lot of people knew, seemed to know what to do. Like they just kind of stepped in, but there were so many more who didn't know what to do and didn't know what to say. And so those are the ones who stepped back. Um, after, after he died, I, I went back to work and um, of course, the very first job I had as an HR professional after returning was working for someone who was a president of the company and his wife had cancer and she died. And I noticed right away how the CEO, you know, the CEO of the company didn't know how to talk to him about this. The his his employees didn't know how to talk to him, didn't know how to work with him. Um, he came back to work about three weeks after his wife died, and he was really kind of out of his mind, you know, as anyone who's dealing with grief is. And so that's when the idea started to occur to me. I, you know, I talked with the managers and helped them, tried to help them work with the, with, with, with the president. I had a couple conversations with the president talking about how, you know, he, he didn't even know how erratic he was being because that's sort of what grief does. It kind of blinds you. Um, and then from then on in, I kept having these HR jobs where an employee would get cancer and the manager would remove all the best projects from that employee, thinking that they were going to help them. And that wasn't helpful. Um, I watched the team not know what to say when an employee's partner died. And so all this sort of kind of came together. And that's how I launched, you know, last year I launched my coaching slash training um, you know, company guiding managers through employee death and also employee grief and cancer and depression. Um, you know, you, we all know if you work in an office, you know, one employee having an off day can affect the whole team. And you know exactly what, you know, one employee having cancer can do and what a death of an employee can do. And we're just not, you know, we're not well, well equipped as adults, as, you know, human beings on knowing what to say and how to help. And um, so that's 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 why I do what I do. That's sort of the 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 long version of a longer story. Oh, no, excellent. So I mean, like just listening to what you're saying. I mean, it's, especially if say the owner that's getting cancer, like the fair inside is probably going to affect the productivity of everyone. Not only they don't know exactly. what to say or what to do, but then. Are they jumping ship or do they feel bad if they're jumping ship? It must cause a lot of confusion in an organization. It does. I mean, there's a lot of shame and guilt and fear. And the fear mostly comes from lack of communication. So what happens is if a manager gets cancer and everyone knows that he or she has cancer, but there's no comp, there's no like, hey, I'm going to be out of the office every Friday. I'll be back in on Tuesday. Here's someone who you can call during this time and communicate with to handle these projects. Um, and then we forget about the human side. You know, your employees are going to want to help you. They're going to want to bring meals. They're going to want to check in on you. How does that stat? What does that status look like? How long? are you as a manager going to get treatment? Um, there's a gentleman, and I just forgotten his name. He's in the UK and he works for a huge um, marketing ad agency. I think it's called Publicis, Publicis, Publicis. And they just kind of took over the hashtag working with cancer because he was a CEO. He had cancer and he, he told the board, 
He told his team, he told everyone in the organization and something that happened to him went after he told everybody was all of these employees and all these people emailed him and said, I never told my manager I had cancer, right? I, I was afraid that it was going to make me seem weak. I was afraid that, that they would fire me. Like there's so much fear and anxiety out there about revealing a cancer diagnosis um, because there's a lot of stereotypes out there about what it means to have cancer. And so when you're dealing with a stereotype and you've got a manager who you don't think is understanding or maybe even understanding, but their stereotype of cancer means you can't work when a larger side of the population who have cancer do and want and can work, then you're, you're sort of fighting an uphill battle and you're fighting that battle at the same time that you're fighting your cancer. And so it just, it's, it's a really uncomfortable situation for a lot of people and it's, and it's not that difficult to solve, but it does require, um, you know, openness and honesty and, and support. And cause I'm just thinking, I remember I worked in the construction industry in Ireland and I was running a lot of projects and one of the foremen that we had, we started giving him a lot of different jobs and it's not cancer now, but he got a, a nervous breakdown. And so he had to take, I don't know, like six months off, but he, like I had a great relationship with him. And when he recovered, I was bringing him back in and the, the, the owners of the company were like, no, you're not. And I'm just wondering, yeah. can that, and I was disgusted with him to be honest with you, because yeah. it was our fault. That he actually right. had it. We put we put too much on his plate. Right. And right. I just wondering, like, because unfortunately not everyone has care and they look they yes. just they're they're loyal to the dollar, unfortunately. Is there kind of owners or senior managers that actually they, they look at it as a weakness and go, Oh yeah, let's just cut the ties here and move on. And surely on the other side, then protecting the person that they have rights that actually stop that from happening. Yeah, I mean, we do have rights, you know, in, in America, we have something called the Americans Disability Act. So that that protects the employee. If the employee says that they have cancer, a company needs to make um, reasonable accommodations. And what that means, it's, it's the, you know, it's a huge range of what reasonable is, right? If 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 I have to, if I have cancer and in, in the, like the leg of bone and I need a wheelchair, reasonable accommodation might be requiring them to put in a wheelchair ramp, which they should have anyway because of the America's, but, you know, so, so it's, it's a wide range, but what that does is it sets, you know, the company up against the employee and look, we are in an employee shortage and it's not going anywhere. We simply, there simply aren't enough human beings to fill the jobs that we have. Now, there are a lot of jobs people don't want, um, but you know, when you're talking about working in offices, there just aren't enough people. And so it and retention is a real issue. And so if I'm a if I'm a head of a company, I want to be thinking about my talent acquisition, how I'm acquiring talent and how I'm keeping talent, my talent management. And so if I have an employee who has cancer, you know, one, one of the things I, I so I have a, a something called the North Star a strategy where I walk managers through a process. And part of that process is the manager and sometimes the team looking at their own stereotypes around cancer or around what it means to grieve. 
right? Because if you haven't had cancer, you your ideas of what it means to get cancer come from reading, mostly right now come from videos, right? So you see, you can on Instagram, you can follow cancer patients, you can see them lose their hair, you can see them go through the difficulty, you see them, you know, with the win. So, but you don't get an inside view, uh, but but I'm just like that, those type of situations only re most of the time reinforce some stereotypes you know cancer patients who keep their hair don't have don't, you know don't have as many followers because they look normal they don't look sick um so really understanding where we get our stereotypes are and what our stereotypes are about somebody with cancer usually that they can't work that they're weak that they're bald that they, you know, have sunken eyes, um, you know, that they get a ring a bell and that once you ring that bell, the, an the end of cancer, you're fighting cancer is done, which is not true. There's often major side effects from the chemo or radiation or surgery that you get that you have to deal with even after that bell is rung. So really taking a good close look at your own stereotypes and going, oh, that's where I have them, you know, and, and that's, that's what I think. And so now I'm clear on that. And from there, I can start to kind of assess what kind of work can this person do? Um, what are they do? What are they working on? And what do I think they can and cannot do? And gosh, guess what? If I'm going to make those decisions, I have to actually talk to the employee who has, who's dealing with this cancer or dealing with grief and, and have an honest conversation of, hey, we want to keep you here. We want to help you. We want to support you. And we get that you're just not capable of doing the full on work that you have been doing in the past. Let's figure out what you can do and let's move forward from there. Excellent. And you were talking about the insurance at the start and I remember uh, one of the girls that uh, used to work for me, she used to go over to America for the summer and basically make a load of money as a waitress. But she was saying that the amount of people there, when they even had a serious accident, broken something, they wouldn't go to the hospital because they weren't covered for insurance. And like, yeah. I know, because I mean, I see a lot regarding the hospitals there. It's a sickness industry, like the fact that they charge so much for even an IV bag and different things. And I've seen, especially in America, the amount of people that actually go bankrupt through this. So I'm 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 just kind of thinking this like in a family, the whole your whole world is rocked when somebody actually has cancer because there's always the you know uncertainty. Nobody knows what's going on. But when it's also a financial issue, because that's the most stressful thing in the world. Like, yeah. is there any way that people like, is that just a rotten system that you can't, it's impossible to navigate or have you kind of figured out ways of kind of getting around that? I wish that I could tell you that, oh no, it's a great system and it's all working great, but it's a horrible system. And you're absolutely right. It's based on sickness. Um, you know, I feel like, I think my husband's treatment in total, I think was like $2 million. And it was all covered by insurance with about, with the exception, I mean, I was, we were in the hole for about $20,000, 20,000 US. Um, and it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, we're lucky that he was working. We're lucky that he was working full-time because in the U S if you're working part-time, um, most companies, if you're working under 30 hours a week, a lot of organizations will not offer you insurance. Um, and it, like I said, it's all tied to the job. So if you're not working, then you have um, something called Medicare, and that allows you to have some type of coverage. But there's a lot of people who are in between, so who don't have, who are working just enough to not be able to qualify because it's qualified about, it's um, 
it's qualified based on, on, on your income. So they're earning just enough to not qualify, but not enough to get insurance. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are people who, you know, a lot of Americans have to work through an illness. So even if they aren't able to take that time off, um, you know, they, they, or even if they are able to take that time off, they have to work because they have to keep the money coming in. There's no, there's no not working and not getting and and getting paid. Um, the, you know, the original story that I often tell is, you know, with my husband and I sitting, my husband had just been diagnosed. We were sitting in the office of this new doctor, which we were very thrilled to be in. And he was talking to us about the insurance plan and, you know, the, the treatment plan. And he said to my husband, look, the treatment's going to take about six to seven months and you're going to be pretty sick. You're not going to be able to work. And like, and then he kept talking and, you know, my husband was listening to him, but I had stopped listening. You know, my heart was in my throat. I like felt like I wanted to get sick because we didn't have six to seven months of savings. And my husband was the major breadwinner in the family. So all of a sudden, you know, my head's spinning. I'm like, do we need to move back in with his family, with my family? Like, you know, all these things are happening in my head. Um, and it turns out, you know, we were very fortunate and we had some really wonderful, generous friends who were able to help us bridge that gap. Um, but, you know, that was a really scary, scary time because if we hadn't had those friends or if we hadn't had family, you know, we could have picked up and gone gone back. We lived, we lived across the country from my parents and his parents. We could have gone back and lived with them and gotten treatment there. And that would have, you know, been 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 a godsend. So we had that safety net, but most people, many people don't have that safety net. And it's a sham. You know, that's it's just it's just a sham. Yeah. This one now is a kind of touchy subject because, and like I've had a lot of loved ones that uh, have died as well. I'm like even had the chemotherapy. So, you know, kind of, yes. you know, what it's like going through it. But, you know, I've kind of spent a lot of my life kind of studying health and surrounding myself with people. And there's a lot of natural ways that most people don't know. I've even, there's times I would offer somebody the advice some take it, some don't, some get cured, others don't, they go down a different route. Yep. It's a touchy subject. What's your kind of thoughts on that? Because even in the work environment or in family or wherever, how you should approach that subject? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm going to say what, what everyone says to be safe. It's an individual choice. Um, but so, you know, there, there's a theory out here that the big pharmaceutical companies don't want to cure cancer because that would mean they wouldn't have enough money. But that I don't believe. Um, I believe that pharmaceutical companies actually want to continue to look into cancer because the way we are going with treating cancer, we're going, we're now moving more into immunotherapy and there's a lot of money to be made in immunotherapy. So immunotherapy is using your own immune system to help fight what is hap what, what ails you. Um, so we are, and, and there are also more than 200 types of cancers. People always say, oh my gosh, you know, they could cure cancer if they want. There are two, over 200 types of cancer, which affect the body in different ways. And I think, you know, you can't, there is no one placebo that's going to cure everything. I mean, it's, it's a really difficult, I have a friend who is actually a stem cell, um, 
stem cell doctor. So he studies how stem cell transplants work and how stem cells work in our bodies. And stem cells are the root cells that help that 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 then get duplicated um, and all the other cells duplicate from. So he studies this and he's like, look, if there was an easy answer, uh, many scientists would have found it. So I do firmly believe in using natural medicine um, towards the end of his life. We put him on a very strict kind of really high fat diet, which seemed to help quite a bit um, because cancers tend to, the cancer he had really likes sugar. So the minute, you know, the reason you get so, you reason you lose so much weight is because the cancer always eats first. So, um, you know, you can put all, and, and it loves sugar, you know, it just loves, loves like bad food and sugar. Um, so yeah, I think there is a way, and I think there are some cancers that can be cured using natural medicine. I would like personally like to see more studies done on them and they are doing more and more of them because it's, you know, we are all very different and your biology is very different from my biology. So what works for you may not work for me, may actually make me sick. So as we progress and understand our own individual DNAs and how our, how our body works, I think that there's a lot of, of information that can be done. I'm, I hope to be around for another 50 years because I know how we treat cancer is going to change drastically now that we've been able to pull apart, you know, our, 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 the, um, the, the DNA string string. So we know exactly every, every single little thing that goes on within the, within the body. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with uh, Royal Raymond Reif? So, no. yeah. So in the thirties, he actually, uh, was able to cure cancer. He had the, I don't know how many patients he done, but he had a hundred percent success rate and they kind of shut him down. And there's been a lot of people like that around the world. Yeah. So, you know, like with this, I suppose it's like the MRNA in theory, it sounds good, but uh, when you look deep into it, it ain't as good as it is. So right. I, know, I know you might have faith in the pharmaceutical industry, but when you look at the all, all the billions of bribes and everything and right. fines that they've got, it's... Yeah, it's, it's yeah, scary. I know. I, I I wouldn't say it's faith. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wouldn't say faith. I just um, I say I have some I have I guess I would say I have some level of trust, not 100 percent level of trust, but some level of trust for sure, for sure. So I suppose in the workplace, what kind of things I suppose we look at it both ways because you'd have experience about things people shouldn't say and things that you'd recommend that they sh should say. Yeah. So it's really funny. Um, I'm going to tell the audience the number one thing not to say. And most people in this audience and your audience have probably said it. Um, and it's, it's such an important phrase that in my book, it is the only act of love that has its own chapter to itself. Everyone else, I, I have a hundred acts of love, all the acts of love share chapters, except for this one. So the number one thing never to say is don't say, if you need anything, let me know, or call me if you need anything, that type of thing. And it sounds so helpful. It sounds like, you know, you would, you're willing to do anything but there are four reasons it's not helpful. The first one is, I mean, I kind of, I'd love to tell the sort of story. So imagine something really great has happened to you. Maybe you've reached a million subscribers, you know, um, you know, maybe you've reached a million subscribers, Roy, on your, on your channel. I, and you're so I excited. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it, it can happen. It will so happen. You go, to, you, you go to lunch, you go to lunch with six people and they all know you've reached a million subscribers. They all know it. And you sit there for two hours and no one says anything to you. 
No one says congratulations. No one says, wow, you've been working so hard. This is so great. You know, I knew you're going to make it. No one says anything. You're kind of like pissed and hurt and no one's acknowledged it and it doesn't feel very good. And you're kind of like, I am never having lunch with you again, right? So the same thing occurs when we're going through something that's difficult. We want to be acknowledged. And it's not like we want to be acknowledged like, oh, poor baby, poor you. We just want someone to say, holy hell, like this is really hard. I can't believe this is happening. I don't know what to say. I'm so sorry. So that's the first thing. That phrase doesn't take that moment to acknowledge the human experience. You know, when we talk about human experience, when we, you know, marriages, you and I had a quick conversation about, you know, where we live how we end up where we live. And it's usually because of somebody else. Right. And so, you know, the, the, the same thing happens, you know, when you come home from work and you've had a bad day, um, what happens is if we feel better when our partner, whoever it is, just goes, Oh, I'm so sorry. I had a bad day. Like just kind of, just kind of cheers you on with your bad day. Right. We like to be acknowledged. That's so important. So that phrase doesn't do that. The second thing, the phrase <laughs> it doesn't do is, when you think about it, like, Roy, what's anything? What is anything? Like, I had a toddler. Does anything meant that you were going to take your brand new, just cleaned car up to the preschool and pick up my vomiting four-year-old? Are you even into kids? I don't know. You know, so does that mean you're going to do that? Or did you mean that you were going to just going to bring me a bottle of wine, right? Anything is too big for anyone to wrap their head around. And just, Third and reason, sorry to interject, but people, yes, please. when someone says that, like you kind of acknowledge it and you know what they mean, but you, most people they're too embarrassed to say, could you do this? They just kind of keep exactly, it to themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the third reason is now you've put the pressure on the person who's already not like fully there because they're under a great amount of stress to figure out the one thing that they need. Roy, my kids one day had to use paper. I don't know what you call it um, in Ireland, toilet paper, um, um, nappies, I guess. No, nappies are, I think, I don't know the stuff you wipe the stuff you wipe yourself with when yeah, you use toilet the paper. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so, um, so, you know, my kids had to use, uh, had to use paper towel one day, the stuff you dry dishes with, or you'd wipe up spills with because I forgot to put toilet paper on the list, but I didn't know even who to call to ask to pick up toilet paper. Cause it just, cause so many people had offered it, right. It had said, if you need anything, let me know. So it is embarrassing to need something in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day. And I also know that I'm putting out somebody like I'm making it hard for them right? Because it's going to put them out. They, if, if I need toilet paper now, they have to stop whatever it is they're doing and go pick me up toilet paper and come back. And they may be willing to do that, but it feels uncomfortable for me to put somebody out to ask that question. And then the last thing is, look, we in, in your country, in my country, we're not very good at asking for help. We're kind of like, we can do it ourselves. And so now you're asking someone who's very vulnerable who doesn't quite know what you meant by anything, but has maybe has something in their mind, what they're thinking of, to call you and ask you for help, to put you out and to risk being rejected. And it's just not gonna happen. The only time this phrase is a great phrase is when it's like your bestest friend, right? So you know you can call your best buddy and go like, I need a six pack, I need diapers, 
And I need you to come sit with me and watch a movie because I feel so crazy right now. Like that is the only time that that phrase is good. So what I advise people to do, and this goes for whether you're, and this rule is goes for whether you're working with them or whether they're your friends. What I advise people to do is one, acknowledge what they're going through and whatever they say, look, I've said to people, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. And they go, well, it's not your fault. And that's not what I meant by when I said, I'm so sorry. It doesn't matter what they say. I'm not taking it personally. I just need to let them know. I see you. I see that this is a crappy, no good, yucky situation. And, and I'm sorry, this is happening to you. You know, one of the best things you can say is I don't even know what to say. Like that's a really powerful statement because you're saying what's happening to them is leaving you speechless. And that's true. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is be specific, be specific on how you can help. And I think, you know, what we forget is it takes courage to help somebody. It, you know, you have to, when, when I think, well, most people don't say anything that's because they think I'm afraid to say the wrong thing. I'm afraid I'm going to make it worse. I'm uncomfortable. Well, if you notice something about all three of those sentences, the focus is not on the person you're trying to help. The focus is on you. And that's exactly where the focus needs not to be. The focus needs to be on the person that you need to help. And yes, you might offer something that they may think is silly or that they think is dumb, or you might say something that's hurtful to them. But the point is that you're giving, you're, you're doing better than 99% of the other people who usually just ignore it or don't say anything. So you, when you, when you put yourself out there, you know, what is it that they say, you know, you miss, miss, you miss not, you miss a hundred percent of the goals. You don't try, you don't, you don't go for. So you might say something wrong, but chances are the person who you're supporting and you want to help is going to really be grateful that you even offered because you're going to be in the minority. You're going to be someone who does, you're going to be someone who like, actually, they're going to feel like you actually understand what they're going through. Um, and lastly, I'll say we all have our helping superpowers. We're all good at things that we don't even think about because we're good at them. I'm not going to cook you a meal, Roy. You're a nice guy, but I'm not going to cook you a Where's meal. Where's the love? Because... Where's the love? <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. Sorry. But if you need something from the grocery store, I am your girl. Yeah. And you want me <laughs> you to <know>? cook. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, if you want to say, hey, I need a can of so-and-so and the store keeps running out of it, I will be at that store to meet that truck, to make sure that you get your can of whatever it is you want. So that's my helping superpower. I'm really good at that. I'm good at organizing. So if you want your cabinets organized or you want to organize your bills or just organize your schedule, I'm your person. But those are the offers that I make to people I know. So, right. So I will say that I'm good at this. I'm happy to help. And I will offer more than once because again, the person that you're dealing with is not going to remember right off the bat that you offered. And when you offer more than once, you're doing a couple of things. One, you're making them remember. Two, you're letting them know that you're serious about helping. Right. They don't know that you really mean it because everyone else has been saying, if you need anything, let me know. So you're letting them know that you're serious about helping. And three, you really are putting them at ease. Even if they don't take you up on what that you offered, they feel supported. Right. And that's really important. That's pretty much the name of the game. Beautiful. Love it. And you know, you mentioned your children were, you know, very young, which is very difficult for you going through you know, bringing, you know, bringing up children, because at that age, yeah. I know myself, I've got children, that's a hard age, but it's also yeah. difficult for them. So, I mean, you've experienced it, but I, I suppose 
what kind of advice you might kind of touch on what things that you've kind of experienced during that time but also for those that you know maybe unfortunately are going about to go through something similar yeah um so i think the first thing is you know they say keep it age appropriate but that's very hard for adults to do because we don't really know what a 12 year old or nine-year-old knows or doesn't know Um, so we decided, you know, we obviously were going to tell the kids that my husband art had cancer and my husband wanted me to tell them what we did a family meeting because he was afraid he was going to cry. And so we have this family meeting, we sit the kids down, they are four, seven and nine. And, you know, we sit them down, we say, you know, your father has cancer and then art starts to cry. So it didn't matter whether he talked or not. He just starts to cry. And then the kids start to cry and everyone, and I start to cry. So we're, we're all crying. And my son, my oldest, my oldest son stops crying and his eyes get really big. And he has this questioning look on his face and he goes, but what's cancer, right? We had forgotten that the kids don't know what cancer is. They had no idea what it was. Luckily, in their lives, in their short lives, they had no experience with it. So we had to actually backtrack and tell them what cancer was. What we didn't tell them was that you can die from cancer because we just didn't think it it actually didn't dawn on us. Again, it was one of those things that we assumed that they knew that you could die from cancer. Um, So along the way, they learned what cancer meant, you know, for them, it was very stereotypical. Their dad would sort of disappear mentally because that chemo took over his brain and then he would show up and he lost his hair and we shaved his head. And so, you know, he got very thin. So for them, it was very typical. Um, Then, you know, he, we, I, um, he, I was told by the doctors that he was going to die. And, and it was really interesting. The doctor, the oncologist knew when he said, you know, it's Monday, your husband's young, his organs are going to hold out for as long as they possibly can. So it's probably going to happen Wednesday night, Thursday. Um, And so my very first goal was to get the kids in, to be able to say goodbye. And at this point, I knew my oldest had kind of thought about death um, and understood that cancer could lead to death. My other two didn't have any clue. And but I knew that I wanted to I wanted to give them the opportunity to have this experience. You know, we've removed death from our society. It happens in hospitals in a way, you know, you know, there were you know, less than 100 years ago, people were dying and you came to the home and the body was laid out on the bed. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, so I wanted them to really have the opportunity to say goodbye and I wanted them to see their father. And so I brought each of them into the room and each of them said goodbye in their own way. Um, it was the most heart wrenching thing I've ever done. And I'm really glad that I did it because my kids afterwards, you know, as they got older, they have this peace about them that they got to say goodbye they, they didn't, you know, the last time they didn't say the father wasn't three days before he died. Um, they got to see him and they don't hold that memory of him in that hospital bed in their minds as much as they hold the memory of him being alive and who he was. And so I thought that was really important. And then the last thing I'll say is early on, I sought out support uh, for myself and for my children. And we went to a grief counselor and the grief counselor said, look, you need to know something about your kid's grief. 
it's going to be harder for them in so many ways. Because Roy, when you learn that my husband died, we automatically think about big events that are going to happen in our in our lives as children, right? There's graduations from school, there's sporting events, there's graduations from college, there's marriage, there's you know grandchildren. So that's what makes us feel so sad is because we know all those things that they're going to miss. Kids don't realize those are milestones until they get there. And so what happens is they re-experience the grief at a deeper level than, than adults do at, the, at those times. So when my daughter turned double digits, she didn't think about turning double digits and my husband not being there until two weeks before she turned double digits. And then she had, you know, it was like the grief had just happened, like his death had just happened again. Um, so I think my my only piece of advice, and this is the way that I, you know, that my husband and I chose to live our lives is that, you know, you tell the kids the truth. Um, you just tell them the truth. And they are much more capable of understanding the truth. If you don't tell them the truth, what they feel leaks out of you, right? So what you feel, your fear, your anxiety, your worry leaks out of you. I mean, we're not hiding anything from our children. And when it leaks out of you and they don't have any idea of what it's about, they think it's about them. So you're basically guaranteeing that they're gonna go need to see some therapy, get some therapy in their adult life because they're thinking their mother is being negligent of them. When their mother isn't being negligent of them, their mother is grieving. Um, so that would be my only advice. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that I wish it's just something that was really hard, oh, you know, and it's, and it's, it's still hard when they miss their father, you know, he was a really good parent. And, um, I sometimes still get very angry that he's dead and that he is not here to help and to counsel his children in the way that only he could um and to and to benefit from he put a lot of hard work in those first those first years of our our lives and he didn't i get to benefit from my my kids are 25 23 and 20 i'm benefiting from all the hard work that he put in when he you know when he was helping raising them helping to raise them and i mean this is this is a kind of touch you know but what were his thoughts process when he knew the time was coming? Because obviously his love for you, but his with young kids as well. Like it's bad enough knowing that you're actually going to pass. But yeah, I think it's the it's the sadness as well for the ones that you know are going to suffer afterwards. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we didn't have that beautiful on TV moment, you know, where he says, you know, I love you and it's going to be okay. Um, we never talked about it. We actually never talked about it. Three weeks before he died, I um, was watching him walk and he was, my husband was six foot six, 235, 235 pounds. I don't know what that turns out in stones, but um, he was very strong, very tall, very big, very stoic. You know, he just had a and at that point, he was 100 and maybe 80 pounds and maybe 170. He he couldn't walk without a walker because he was so unsteady. And I remember he's just fighting so hard. And so it's so funny. I don't often tell this story. Um, 
So I sat them, our kids had gone, uh, we had sent the kids, uh, they were on vacation and we'd sent the kids to go stay with my in-laws because we just, everyone needed a break. And so I sat him down with me and we had this big overstuffed chair that two of us could fit into. And I sat him down and I just said, you know, sweetheart, I see how much you're working. Like I see how hard you're trying to stay alive and you don't have to, like, we'll be okay. We're going to miss you but you don't have to, you don't have to keep fighting for us. And then three weeks later he died. And, um, we never had that conversation, but I think that he was tired, you know, and I think that he had given it his best shot. Um, and I think that he didn't want to leave, but he, like I said, the, the, his body was just done. Um, and so I, I know he left feeling comforted that we were in good hands because we had, you know, the book is based on all the different things that you can do to support somebody dealing with this. And most of the things in that book people did for us. So, you know, he, I believe that he felt comfortable knowing that we were being really, really, really well taken care of by our community. Um I think, I hope that he left knowing that, you know, he did a really great job with the kids. Um, so I think that, you know, I, I believe that he left feeling okay. He didn't, he didn't fight it. And I will say this too. I was there when he died and I'm, I really feel like that was his last greatest gift to me because I needed, I needed to see him out. I needed to watch the color of his face change, watch everything about him change. And it completely changes. Like you see, you know, people talk about, you see the spirit leaving it, it, the person after they die, they're not that person anymore, but I needed to see that. And he knew that he could have easily died half an hour before when I went downstairs to get something to eat. Right. I mean, he could have, he could have arranged it that way, but he waited and, and he let me be there with him. And I think that was, he knew how important it was to me. Um, so yeah, it was not, a yeah. No, I just know from my, my, from my grandmother, I think even though, you know, there's the inevitable, it's, I don't know. I think you just feel, cause you know, they're no longer the body and yes. you know, you're left with the memory and you just know that there's something like nobody knows what, what but there, there's something yeah. there and you just know the life forces and you can just kind of feel it and then there's things will happen and then you just go you know they're there with you you know it's just like yeah. this, there's so many things like it's happened to me a few times with different things and you go nah they're definitely there's something there that's kind of confirming to me that everything is okay yeah yeah I, yeah, I know yeah, it's it a hard is. one to say but you know what I mean yep. yeah, yeah 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 you know my husband had a very dry sense of humor um, like if you didn't pay attention, you would miss it. And, and one of the things he did, I was, he, his youngest sister was there with me and, and one of his best friends. And one of the things he did is at the end of death, your breathing gets very ragged and irregular. And so at some point there was an exhale and we were like, we just, the three of us started crying and, you know, just wailing and he's gone and it's done. And then he breathed again. He took in a breath. And we all cracked up because we knew that's exactly along the lines of what, I mean, he's mad. I know he's mad. We have tax day in the United States. Tax day is April 15th. 
He died at 1.16 a.m. on April 16th. He would have loved to die on tax day because of the saying that we have here, which is death and taxes. Like there are two things that are sure in your life and it's death and taxes. And he would have loved to have died on tax day. I know that he was pissed that he you know, went to an hour and 16 minutes past tax day. Um, but yeah, there are moments that make it really... I think the thing people forget and or that people try to force on you is in the horror of death or in the horror of a cancer diagnosis, there is also incredible grace and beauty. And it's and the thing about it is it's not for anyone else to point out. You know, don't tell me it's God's plan that my husband died. Like it may be and and I but I need to come to that conclusion. Right. It's not anyone. It's not an outside person's job to say things happen for a reason. That may be true. But I, as the person who's dealing with the grief or the what's ever happening, I need to come to that conclusion myself. But, you know, one of the things I found and I've discovered that I absolutely love and I love what I do is I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if my husband hadn't died. You know, it wouldn't be as powerful if he had just had cancer. Um, and so there's incredible. I love talking about him because there's incredible sadness. But there's also incredible grace and joy and gratitude for all the things that I got because of who he was, right? And, and he still lives in me and he still affects the way I do things. And I, you know, I have more of him in me now than I did ever when we were married. We were married for 14 years. You know, when, when they're physically there, you're like, nope, that's your thing. But now it's no longer just his thing. It's my thing too. So yeah, it's just, it's it's an incredible journey. It's not fun, but it's an incredible journey. Oh, definitely. And just uh, finally there, your your podcast, uh, you, are you still doing the podcast? Because I remember seeing the... Yeah, I um, stopped doing the podcast and I'm going to relaunch. I think I'm going to relaunch around April, which is right around his death date. Okay, okay. And just, you may just touch on the, because you've got, so the hundred acts of love are basically all of the the things that people support you that you've included in things so the, the book is called 100 acts of of love and wh where can they get the book and you might tell us the different uh websites sure. to find you as well sure so first of all if you're a manager or an hr person who is struggling with you have an employee who has cancer um you've you know an employee has just died in your team and you don't know what to do please reach out to me and the best place to find me is on linkedin so you can just you know google my name kim hamer 1m and you'll find me there um, so that's it. I'm happy to work with you. You can also find me on LinkedIn every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific time. So that's California time. Um, I do LinkedIn lives for about, they run 15 to 20, 15 to 30 minutes long, where I talk about everything that has to do with how are you compassionate with your employee? How do you show empathy and drive productivity? So this is particularly focused on managers who are trying to find that balance. Um, you can also find the book at my website at 100xoflove.com. And that's the number 100. And if you want to learn four other things never to say to anybody dealing with cancer or loss, and also why not to say them and what to say instead, you can go to 100xoflove.com backslash what not 
to say. So very clear what not to say, no capitals, no spaces. So you'll get this download and then you'll be, then you will always know what to say. You will never be one of those people who someone else is in crisis going, they don't get it. You will always know that, you know, you'll know what to say. Um, and then lastly, I'm on Instagram, always on Instagram at a hundred acts of love as well. So those are the best places to reach me. I'm on Facebook, but not as much. Um, yeah. And drop a line. Look, we all have questions. We all don't know what we're doing. There's, there's no rule book out here. There's no guidebook. There's nothing out there saying, oh, my friend just became a widow. What, you know, this, these are the five things you need to say to someone. Um, and Google is great to a surface to a certain degree, but it doesn't cover the depth that we need. So I think that that's really important. So please feel free, DM me on any of those things. And I am happy to respond and, and to help you really support your um, employee and your friend. And then lastly, I just want to say, um, I am not here because I was able to get through this big tragedy on my own. Like the foundation for my new life after my husband died was built partly by people showing up. And I think we always underestimate how much we matter. You don't have to cook a meal for eight months, every Monday for eight months. That's not what you need to do. The person who's dealing with this tragedy just needs you to be you. If you have a great sense of humor, continue to tell jokes. If you're the serious person, if you're an Excel you know, spreadsheet expert and you know that they need to get these reports out with graphs, offer that. I, you know, I just want people to remember how much they matter. Like you, listener, you really, really matter. You're important. And some, you know, showing up really makes a difference because it made a difference in my life. So that was, that's my final thing. Beautiful. Yeah. Listen, thank you very much, Kim. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And I'll make sure I'll put all the links both in the audio and the video. And I know that all the tips that you've given will help a lot of people because, you know, whether you're actually got the cancer yourself or you've got a loved one, you know, there's been loads of things that you said there that is fantastic. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. So that's all for the Awakening Podcast. As mentioned, you'll find all my other podcasts and uh, my coaching on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, and make sure if you buy our book, which I encourage you to do so, to give her a five-star rating as well and her podcast. And when she's relaunching <laughs> it, it will help her getting into the chat. Until next week, take care. <laughs>